You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. I need everyone to remain standing (laughs) for the reading of God's Word. My name is Kim Morris, and I have the privilege of reading God's Word this morning. And this scripture is very close to my heart since I work with uh, kids ministry, as a lot of you I know do as well. So please listen to Matthew 18, verses 1 through 4, and Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Kim. Good morning, everybody. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, I'm Joel. I'm one of the pastors here, and I have the privilege of opening up God's Word with you today. So let me pray as we get into this together. Father, would you come now? Give us hearts that are tender receptive to what you want to speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you just have your way in us and in this room and those who are watching online, would you have your way with us today? Help us to leave behind lives of pride and shame and enter into the humility through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, to kick things off, I want to ask you to imagine yourself at a party, okay? And for those of you who are unfamiliar, these were these events that people used to host, and, and people would actually come together in, within the same household sometimes, face-to-face, getting together with each other and having social uh, celebrations. It was a lot of fun. You should try one someday if you haven't yet. Um, but, but imagine yourself at a party and, and who do you picture there with you? Who do you picture there? Is it uh, friends? Is it family? If you're married, do you have a spouse there with you? If you have kids, are they there with you? Or maybe you're imagining an office party, right? You're there with your coworkers. Maybe you're picturing something like a work party on the office and Michael Scott and Dwight are hanging out with you there. What are you doing at this party? What, what is something that we all often do at parties? It's what people actually use social media for now, and that is comparisons, amen? This is what is often going on behind the scenes 
at the party, comparisons, ranking everyone in the room. Oh, that, that person's cool. Okay. He's important. Oh, they're attractive, right? And what do you inevitably do when you're doing this comparison? You inevitably come back to yourself. You inevitably compare yourself to everyone. You may not have like a consciously numbered and ranked list of everyone in the room in your mind, but, but you have a sense of your value and their value and where all of this falls on the social spectrum. Amen. Can we just be honest here for a minute? And perhaps what we are most attuned to in those moments is the problem of pride. The, the people who know that they're the best person in the room, right? And, and they act like it. That's a problem of pride. But then there are also many that feel just the opposite. They're not the best. They might even feel like they're the worst, or at least lower on the ladder than they wish that they were, thinking things like, I wish I were more like them. Man, I wish I was just I was more like them. They're beautiful. They're smart, which makes me feel ugly and dumb. And so while it is very different from pride, it's a similar problem. It's, it's shame. And, and this human ranking system, wherever you fall in it, it's destructive, whether we approach it from the angle of pride or the angle of shame. Which one do you lean more toward? We're going to explore that today. I want you to think about that today. And what I want you to think about that for is because Jesus is going to offer us a better way. Amen. He's going to offer us a better way. Pride and shame are enemies of humility. And Jesus is the epitome of humility. He's the eternal Son of God, the source of all greatness, all majesty, all power and glory, like we've just sung about earlier in our service. He's the source of all of those things, and the eternal Son of God, as the source of all those things, lays them all aside. And he comes, and he takes on human flesh in humility. And in the, the scripture that we're going to be exploring today, Jesus reveals that the only way to enter into his kingdom, in other words, life with him forever, the only way to enter into that is to imitate his humility, to turn away from pride and shame and become as socially insignificant and unimportant as a child was in the first century. And you know what, as we do, we also find the truest and best life possible. But you know, just because it's the best and the most beautiful life available to us, we all know it doesn't make it immediately easy to embrace it or to, uh, to live this out in our everyday, amen? And so even if this is a very familiar topic to you, I want to encourage you today to return with me to this kingdom vision. And we'll, over the years, we're going to have to do this over and over and over again. Jesus humbled himself, so we turn and humble ourselves like a child. That's the big idea today. And as we get into it, I just want to give us a little bit of some context for where this falls in the Gospel of Matthew. This is the fourth now of five 
major discourses, major sections of teaching that Jesus does in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're entering now into the final chapters of Jesus' life and ministry. Up until this point, especially over uh, chapters 14 through 17, Jesus has been doing all this emphasis on his identity and on his mission. And now in this teaching, in this chapter, in the following chapters, Jesus is going to instruct his disciples on how the kingdom of heaven takes shape in society, and in relationships, especially within the church. So that's what we're going to be looking at today and over the course of the next few weeks. Let's look now at what did the disciples ask Jesus. And it came in verse 1. They asked him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They want to know who's the greatest of all time, Jesus. Who's the goat, right? Who's the goat? And The Greek word that is translated as great here is megas, which is where we get our word for mega, right? And so basically, the disciples are asking Jesus, how do I qualify as a mega disciple? (laughs) How do I qualify as a mega disciple? And you know, have you ever asked God for something that you want Only for him, yeah, everyone says, yeah, (laughs) hold on. Do you ever ask God for something that you want only for him to give you what you need, what he knows that you need? Well, what's just unfolded here is exactly that. So what did the disciples want? They wanted greatness, right? And and some people have suggested they wanted something good here, that that they were really looking for something good. Maybe they were just a little bit misguided in how they were looking for it. And I think there's some truth to that. I think I can accept that, at least to an extent. See, we all want significance. There's nothing wrong with that. It's actually not a bad thing. It's a good thing. God made us in His image to reflect His glory. Amen? And so that's pretty great. That's a good thing for us to do. In fact, The Bible tells us to uh, outdo one another in showing honor. It it tells us to spur one another on to love and good works. There's a kind of competition and comparison that happens in those things. But the problem comes when that competition and comparison lead us away from the kingdom of heaven. And based on Jesus' response to their question, it seems like the disciples were chasing after a very distorted version of greatness, one where they get to feel more important, more significant than the people around them. And so Jesus corrects them, I think. I think that's what he's doing. And, and they ask him for something that they want, but Jesus then gives them something that they need. What did the disciples need? We find it in verses two through four. And calling to him a child, he put him and it could, it could be a boy or it could be a girl. The Greek word for child is neutral, gender neutral. So he put this child in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So what did the disciples need? They needed to turn and humble themselves like a child, Jesus said. And so if you want greatness, which you should, 
You need to turn and humble yourselves like children. We, I, need to humble myself like a child. Now, I want to break this down a little bit for us by looking at each key word. So the key words are turn, humble, and child. And I want to do this because it's through those words that we actually learn what we need as well. Okay, And we're going to do them in reverse order. So let's start with child. Why does Jesus use child, a child, as an illustration here? You ever think about this? Like, how is a child humble? And this can be a bit of a challenge to us in our modern day because we see kids very, very differently from how they were seen by ancient people probably do at least in part to the fact that Christianity has shaped our views of children uh, in our society. But how do we see children differently from how they were seen back then? Well, the first is just that we believe that we should treat all people with dignity and respect, amen? And that's just a plain Christian value that we hold as a society, even if we aren't Christians. So even people that think that little kids are annoying... (laughs) which there are plenty, people who think that, that kids you know, should be uh, seen and not heard often still believe that they should be treated with some level of dignity and respect, especially kids who are vulnerable and, and marginalized. And so that's one way that we see kids very differently uh, from ancient people, although that's a positive thing, that, that we think that they should be treated with dignity and respect. Most of the rest of the ways that we see them, though, differently are, I would say, negative. So one is our kids have entitlement. Amen? Can we just acknowledge this as a society? <laughs> that our kids have entitlement, that they know that they can boss us around, right? That they know that they can have every toy in the store. All they have to do is roll around on the floor and throw a tantrum, and we will do anything to make the, sh- the screaming stop in a public place. Amen? Come on, am I the only one who thinks this? Okay. So our kids are entitled. That's one way that we see children differently. But that is sort of a result of another way that we see children differently, and that is that we lean toward passive parenting, is what I would call it, which is really rooted in a belief that is contrary to the Christian doctrine of original sin. It's rooted in a belief that kids just need to be given the space to be the good people that they really are. And if you've ever had kids, you probably know that's not true. <laughs> Amen? And so we, we kind of think differently about kids. I'm going to get off my parenting soapbox. We'll hopefully do that another time. But my point in bringing all those things up is just to say that we can't imagine kids as anything but great just because of the way that our society looks at them. And yet Jesus uses them here as an example of insignificance. Why? It's because they saw children very differently in the first century. N.T. Wright, the historian and Bible scholar, he tells us that in the ancient world, children were frequently seen as only half-human until they reached puberty, probably due to the fact that their value was bound up in their ability to have more children or their availability as sexual partners. And and so girls, especially in the ancient world, suffered. Often newborn girls were simply thrown away or left to starve or, or left to be eaten by predators. 
or later sold into prostitution at an early age. All of these things simply because their family didn't want to have to have the financial burden of another daughter who they would have to pay to uh, get them married. And you know, even Jews at times saw children this way. And sadly, this still works this way in many parts of the world we know. And if we're honest with ourselves as a society, we do the same thing, only we don't wait for them to come out of the womb before we throw them away. Amen? And so if we want to understand just how upside down Jesus' answer to these disciples was, we have to imagine the weakest, most vulnerable, least significant human being that you can possibly think of. That is what Jesus meant by a child. And he tells us, you need to be like that. (laughs) You need to be like that, which is described in this word that he uses, humble. What does Jesus mean when he speaks of the word humble? Well, it's not too dissimilar to the way that the Apostle Paul talks about it in Philippians 2. And there he says, to consider others more significant than yourself. Consider others more significant than yourself. And and he says, it doesn't mean that you don't have value. Look after your own interests, but also look after the interests of others, is, is what Paul tells us there. So it's not that you don't have value, it's that you place the greatest good of another person higher than your greatest good. Because you aren't puffed up with conceit like it's all about me, right? And this is why later on, as Kim read for us earlier in, in chapter 19, Jesus says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Why does he do that? It's because he's elevating the status of someone who has none. Children in their society. And that is humility, Now finally, the final word, remember we looked at these different words, child and then humble, and now we'll look at the word turn. This word, Jesus says, it's the only way that you get to a place of childlike humility. It's to turn. And and what does he mean by that? He means that he wants us to repent. Repentance is is a 180 degree turn, right? 180 degree turn. Turn away uh, from a life of pride from a life of shame and turn to a life of humility, which can only happen when you have a change of mind, when you have a change of heart, and when you have a change of action. Now, I didn't plan it this way when I was mapping out our sermon series in terms of time, but uh, interestingly, this turning, this repenting that we're talking about is a primary purpose of the season of Lent, which, as Pastor David mentioned, we've just entered into. It's this season where we spend time allowing God's Spirit to examine us, to change us. So I wonder how you can utilize Lent as a season where you are inviting God to grow you in humility. What stands in the way of greater degrees of humility for you? I asked earlier, do you lean more toward pride or toward shame? Maybe, maybe you're kind of all, 
I take a hefty helping of both at different times, right? Pride, as, as it pertains to the issues we're talking about today, pride is, is being great by the world's standards. So powerful, you're, you're beautiful, you're smart, you're successful, right? Anybody watch Super Bowl 58? You guys powered through? <laughs> I was like, how many times are they going to cut to Taylor Swift? I really can't take this anymore. Um, <laughs> but at the end of all of that, the Chiefs are the champions, right? And they're not just champions, they are world champions, which I always find really funny. I'm like, we're the only country in the world that plays this sport, and somehow they're world champions, but that's what they are, right? And they are the greatest, pretty easy to say at this point, and uh, people are even beginning to compare this might be a little too deep of a dive into football for some of y'all, but they're beginning to compare Andy Reid and Patrick Mahomes to Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, who is the GOAT. I mean, these guys are like well-known as the best of all time. And so now the Kansas City Chiefs, all the players on that team, they have a challenge. Here it is. Achieve great success without getting puffed up with pride. <laughs> Any of you have had success you know what this challenge is like. I'm sure many people on the team don't care to have that challenge. They'd like to just puff themselves up with pride. Because at this point, they're the best. And so they can compare themselves to everyone else, and they're better. At least for right now. At least for the time being. And so pride is being great by the world's standards. Shame, on the other hand, is an emotion when we aren't great by the world's standards. It's that pain that you feel, feeling inadequate, feeling worthless. It's the pain of comparing yourself to others and finding yourself less than them. And you know, the ironic thing, the sad thing, is that we often try and deal with our shame by puffing ourselves up with pride, by trying to fill ourselves with more self-esteem. If I can just climb this social ladder a little bit, if I can just make this accomplishment, then I will escape this awful feeling that I'm having right now. But if you've ever tried this, you know that it doesn't work. I've tried it. I can tell you it doesn't work. Because pride, although it really does feel good for a moment... It ultimately destroys us and the people around us. Anyone here ever have a relationship with a really prideful person? Anybody? Oh, yeah, like three of you. Okay. <laughs> really? <laughs> I'm just, maybe, okay, everybody awake? Okay. Anybody ever have a relationship with a really prideful person? I mean, I have. I don't know about you guys. Okay. <laughs> you don't have to if you haven't had one, but... Um, if you have, you know that's just like misery, right? It's a miserable thing. On the other hand, anyone ever have a relationship with a really humble person? Oh, it's so joyful, isn't it? And so humility, it's, it's not just upside down. It is that. And it's not only uh, the way into the kingdom of heaven. It is that as well. But it's also the best life, it really is. 
It is the best life. It's way better than the pride and shame game. Because as the old saying goes, comparison is the thief of joy. You guys have probably heard that before. And so, if that's the case, if Jesus is calling us into this better life that he has available to us, you might be wondering, like, how do, how do I actually become truly humble? How do I actually grow in humility? How do I stop comparing myself to others, myself to others, and, and being controlled by this pride and this shame? And I want to look at it from both of those angles now. What would it look like to grow in humility if you struggle with pride, for example? And oftentimes, if you struggle with pride, it's because you have a lot of reason to be proud. You've had great success. And I mean, we're living in a a very successful city, right? And our church family is filled with people who I'm looking at right now who have, you have achieved great success. Maybe you've worked for, maybe you've run or you've owned massive companies, right? You've made it to the top of your game. You've made enough money to fill your swimming pool and then go swimming in it, right? <laughs> or maybe, maybe it's not a money thing or a, a work thing for you, but maybe you're just really smart, And you've achieved a lot in the academic world. Or maybe you're just really attractive and you know it. Okay? (laughs) Just being honest here. Maybe you just, maybe you have a really high social IQ and you know how to work a room and and take command. (laughs) What do you do? What if you have these great qualities How do you gain humility? Here's where it's found. It's where Jesus says that your achievements make no difference to your status in the kingdom of heaven. That's what he says. Did you catch that? uh, Second half of verse 3 and verse 4. Check out how these two things go together. Unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So you have to become like a child to enter the kingdom of heaven, he says. And then, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You notice how those two things go together. If you have made it into the kingdom of heaven, you've become like a child. And whoever humbles himself like a child is the greatest. So what's he saying? Are you catching it? He's saying that if you are a Christian... It means you are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You're like the Patrick Mahomes of heaven. Amen? And some of you guys are like, yes, (laughs) greatness. I finally achieved greatness, right? But don't you see how liberating this is? Don't you see? Everyone who you will spend eternity with is the greatest. Everyone. That's what this says. No one is better than the next person, which means that my successes, they can't change who I am in the kingdom of heaven. They just can't. Because in the end, I didn't give myself any of my abilities. Amen? Did you? Did you manufacture those? No. I didn't give my, providentially give myself opportunities. God did. 
I didn't determine the times and the places in which I live. God did. It's not that I had no involvement in my successes, but it's just that I'm helpless apart from Him to have them. And so I often think of this line in this song, Jesus paid it all. I think we sang it last week. And when before the throne I stand in Him complete, I will lay my trophies down, lay them down at Jesus' feet. Isn't that beautiful? Any great successes you have had in this life are merely opportunities to give God glory. Amen. Amen. It crushes pride to know that and to embrace that and to live that. And some of you in the room who lean more towards shame, you might say, well, great, that's convenient for successful people. They get to be great in this life and in the one to come, right? <laughs> and you're going, what if I've had great failures? That's, that's all people who are successful and great. What if I've had great failures? What if I am ugly? Or at least I see myself as ugly. What if I am dumb? What if I can't get a job? Worse yet, what if I'm boring? <laughs> One of the greatest wrongs in our society, right? What if I'm boring? And I need to pause for just a second before I deal with this. Um, because I think as we experience shame, we need to acknowledge that oftentimes our experience of shame is totally inaccurate. That we feel these things when our brothers and sisters might come around us and say, no, you're wonderful, and there might be things that they could celebrate about us. And the enemy loves using shame to condemn us and to crush us and to drag us down so that we are completely incapable of doing ministry and spreading the kingdom of God. He loves using shame just as much as he loves using pride to do that. So I just want to look behind the curtain there and unveil that before we deal with shame. And the good news is, even if you've had failures, even if you don't measure up on all the ways that the world wants us to gain status, friends, none of it can change who you are in the kingdom of heaven. It can't. It can't do a thing. First, because everyone is great in the kingdom of heaven, just like we just looked at that Jesus said. And, and we're not great because we made ourselves great, right? We are great because of him who made us into his children. And you see, entering the kingdom, it comes from that turning from our own self-sufficiency, turning from our own significance or seeking it in those places. It, it comes from turning away from looking down upon ourselves, friends, and recognizing that we aren't good enough. And that's why God offers us grace. That's the good news. Amen? He offers us grace, for, yeah, for our sin, but also for all of our limits, all of our faults, all of our failures, all the ways that we fall short from what we wish we could be. They're all transformed by the God 
who humbles the proud and exalts the humble. Isn't that amazing? Anybody? I think it's beautiful. (laughs) And this is why you have to turn. The good news is that if you do, if you humble yourself like a child, you will enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. But there's also bad news with that. And the bad news is that if you don't, you won't. Plain and simple. God, it says in 1 Peter 5, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You want grace? You need to humble yourself. You know, some people often say, well, you know, grace is unconditional. Well, no, it's not. It's not. See that? Grace requires that you humble yourself. It's not without condition. It's totally free, so it's good news. You can have free grace. There's nothing you can work or do to earn it. Praise God. Nothing you have to do for it. And it's available in total abundance, grace to you. There's no limit to it. There's no sin so great that God doesn't offer you grace for it. But it's not without condition. You must turn. You must humble yourself or you will never enter the kingdom. And knowing that actually does humble us as we come before Jesus. And what humbles us more than anything, I want to close with this, is looking at Christ's and his life. Philippians 2, 6 through 11 says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus, though he was in eternity past, the Son of God, equal to God the Father and God the Spirit, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto. No. What did he do? He emptied himself. He let go of all of those rights, all of that power, all of that majesty, all of that greatness by taking the form of a servant, being born like one of us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus counted himself as the least significant of all people by giving himself for you and for me. And therefore, what has God done? He raised him from the dead and he has now highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Amen? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? You want to be great? Good. You should. Be like Jesus. Humble yourself. Make yourself as insignificant as a child. And the best part is, God, our Father, will get the glory. Let's pray. Jesus, You are highly exalted. There is no one and no thing that is greater than you. And so we praise you. 
Jesus, we want to see you and treasure you more deeply and know you and love you more fully. Would you humble us as we are captivated by the story of the gospel and your coming in humility and giving yourself for us? We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.